going to talk today about shaking complacency. How many of you know that, that uh, sometimes if, if someone's sleeping, you have to go up and you got to shake them a little bit to wake them up? Have you all ever experienced that before? Like you said their name and they don't, they don't do anything. They're like on, you know, I don't know, we watched Inception uh, yesterday and, uh, you know, these people are sleeping. How many know they had to be shaken to be woke up? And, and the deeper they were into sleep, the more they had to be shaken. And I feel like that if we are, that if we don't rem- continually be shaken. And, and now we talked about shaking another way, but I'm talking about shaking the core of us to say, man, you need to wake up. If, if, we, don't, if we don't shake that complacency, how many know that complacency is your default? Your default is to settle. Your default is to say, okay, the race is done. Let me just sit here and I'll just, I'll just kind of chill out. But this is not our default in the kingdom. In the kingdom, we have a hunt. We have a chase and you're chasing something. Come on, are you with me? You're aggressive after something. But Jesus is asking, will you let me be the thing that you're chasing? Will you let my kingdom be the thing that you're pursuing? Or will you pursue these other things? Come on, are you with me? How I many of you know that when you're, if you pursue peace, you might not find it, but if you pursue Jesus, you'll find peace. Come on. You'll, you'll find joy. You'll find encouragement. Come on. All right, check this out. Psalm chapter 53, verse 2. It says, God looks down from heaven on the entire human race And he looks to see if anyone is truly wise and if anyone seeks God. If anyone. So God's looking from heaven and he's looking for those that are pursuing him. Those are the ones he wants. Come on, are you with me? Matthew chapter 13, verse 45. God's kingdom is like a jewel merchant on the hunt for excellent pearls. Finding one that is flawless He immediately sells everything and buys it. Jesus said it like this. He's like, it's a treasure hidden in a field. So the man goes out and sells everything, and he buys the field, and he gets the treasure. Come on. So whatever your treasure is, come on, whatever you would really like to have joy, if you will just buy the field, if you'll buy the kingdom, come on, then God will give you the treasures that are inside the kingdom. And listen, so when we come to Jesus, we, we come with this relentlessness. We see this all throughout the message of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those that are like a beggar in their spirit for God, theirs of the kingdom. We see this all throughout Scripture, all throughout the teaching of Jesus, that, that, that kingdom people are relentless in their pursuit. And the, the tendency sometimes is to go after Jesus to a point to save us, whether it be salvation or whether it be like you're going through divorce and you go to Jesus, say, Jesus, fix my divorce. And then once it's fixed, we kind of just settle there and we start pursuing him. Are you guys with me? And so it's like we're kind of rubbing a genie in a bottle, right, for our need. And Jesus is saying, I, I want my presence in your life. Paul, the Apostle Paul, we talk a lot with most of our theology uh, as New Testament believers, we get from, you know, at least a, a good two-thirds of it from the writings of Paul, right? Well, Paul has this experience in the book of Acts where he's going to kill Christians. If you're familiar with Paul's story, he was a, he was a, a deeply religious person, but uh, zealous for the wrong reasons, and he was pursuing, and then God shook him up, right? He was going to, to kill more Christians, and God smacks him off his horse, knocks him down, and he looks up, and he says this statement. He says, who are you, Lord? That's what comes out of his mouth. Who are you, Lord? And I could tell you that this isn't a cry that ended at that moment. And we read this in Philippians. This is what Paul says. Now, th- th- he said that at the beginning, and he's saying that at the end of his life. He says this in Philippians He says, I consider everything, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness 
of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Right? Jesus is that pearl. He went and sold everything. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Now, didn't Paul already have Christ? But he's saying, I have Christ, but that I might gain Christ. So the kingdom is here, and it's coming. Right? And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteous. That comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. Well, hold a second. I thought he already knew Christ. No, no, no. You're missing it. He is still chasing He is still pursuing the one that pursued him. He's still going after him. When Jesus called his name that first time, he said, man, I'm going to end the race the same way I started it. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? I want to know who you are. I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing with his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death and somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, And and this is what happens with complacency. We say, I'm good right here. God probably has better, but I'm good right here. And it's pride. And it says, hey, I'll stay here. Not that I have attained this or that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ took hold of me. Uh, one One of the translations in the Greek, it actually means that I may apprehend Christ like he apprehended me. That I would take a hold of Jesus like he took a hold of me. How many of Jesus has taken a hold of you? Come on, are you with me? And so what we are doing is we are spending the rest of our life holding on to Jesus, grasping on to Jesus. It's just a response. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize. What is the prize? The prize is the greatness of knowing him. The prize isn't heaven. The prize isn't crowns. How many know that, that, it, that if we pursue Jesus with the kingdom first, we, when we get to heaven, we're going to get crowns? But we're not going to have those crowns and store them in a storage shed somewhere in heaven just so we can say we have a lot of crowns. No, no, no. All those things, we're going to take them and we're going to lay them at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because he's the one we're after. We're not after the crown. The crown is just something to offer him. I press toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Listen, today we're talking about the greatest enemy of your hunt. It's the greatest enemy. It's not temptation. The greatest enemy isn't emotional issues. It's not even bitterness. It's the tendency to settle and become complacent. This is your greatest enemy. Because I'm telling you, if you will stay ambitious about pursuing Jesus... All these things will fall into line. You won't have to worry about sin management. Right? That's what we do. Right? We try to manage our sins. Well, uh, you know, if I'm struggling, listen, if you just pursue Jesus, you're going to sin less. Doesn't mean you're sinless. Come on. But you're going to sin less as you pursue him. You say, man, I'm just struggling with this. I'm struggling. Uh, you know, I, I did I did a youth ministry for, you know, almost the better part of 20 years before we launched Overflow. And, uh, you know, I, over the years, just had people, like, come to us and, man, I just don't know. I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with that. I'm dealing with this, that, that. And, and it's crazy because the answer stays the same. This is what I ask people when, they, when they're, I'm like, well, wh- what's your devotional time with the Lord like? Listen, you're struggling with anger, frustration. What's your devotional time with the Lord like? 
How much time are you spending in God's presence every day? How much time are you spending praying? How much time are you reading your Bible? Right? How much time are you spending before God? You go, oh, uh, not as much as I need to. Well, duh. Because if you were doing as much as you needed to, all those things would just fall into line. And so it's never an issue of temptation. It's never an issue of weakness. It's an, it's an issue of how ambitious are you for his presence. I don't know about you, but I couldn't, like, experience what we were experiencing in worship a few minutes ago and sin at the same time. <laughs> right? I mean, I couldn't. So this, the enemy of your hunt is complacency. It just wants you to stop hunting and be content with where you're at. Oh, I'm good with God. What's your relationship with God like? Oh, that's good. Are you good with that? Because last I checked, the standard is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, all of that. How many of y'all are doing that? None of us. But that's the goal. So what do we do? We spend the rest of our life striving that, striving for that. God, I want to love you. I want to love you. And Jesus said the law and the prophets are all fulfilled in this love. It's all fulfilled in intimacy. What happens when I start, stop pursuing my wife? Issues. I got her, but I'm still pursuing her. Come on, you know what I'm saying? Hi. All right. Listen, in my opinion, in, in my opinion, the greatest sin in the church today is complacency, in my opinion. Because complacency breeds coldness. It breeds coldness of heart. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, verse 12, uh, Jesus says this. He's speaking of the end of the age. How many of y'all know that we're living in the end? Since the book of Acts, we were living in the end. Now, whether we're at the end of the end or the middle of the end, I don't know, but I know that we're in the end. We're in the final chapter. I don't know how long that chapter is, but we're in that final chapter. Jesus says this, this sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. Now, the actual Greek word for that is wax cold, but we're, you know, we don't read that real well. The love of many will wax cold. Okay, that's weird. Wax cold. What, what happens with wax when the fire goes out? It gets cold, Right? turns back the way it was. Come on, are you with me? And so this is what's going to happen at the end of the age. Sin is going to increase, but the love of many, which some translation says the love of most, will grow cold. Why do you think Jesus was coming back with this great rebuke towards the seven churches in Revelation? Because their love had grown cold. Listen, you got to keep your love hot. You got to keep your love hot. You got to keep your you got to keep keep your flame on. It's easy for us just to sit around and look at somebody else and go, "Oh man, they're just so fervent for God." I choose not to be someone who applauds the flames of others unless I'm going after God in the same manner. When I see someone that's going after God, I don't admire it. I get challenged by it and go, "Man, I want to be not like that, but I want to be more than that." I want to burn for God. I don't want my love to wax cold because cold wax is hard wax. So don't cool off. Come on, are you with me? Keep your flame on. Uh, just a little side note here. You know, when Jesus tells us to be the light of the world, in context of Scripture, there is never light without flame. 
There is never light without flame in Scripture. They didn't have electricity. You know, I know we got the cool shirts that says, light of the world, light bulb, nah, light of the world, flame, flame on, right? That's you, flame on, burning for Jesus, just like he's burning for you. That's what it says in Revelation, that his eyes are like fire, that he's burning, that his feet are like burnished bronze. He's, he looks like the sun. He's hard to stare at. He's just burning. What's he burning for? He's burning for you. And he's wanting you to reflect that burn in your life, that you're burning for him. So don't, don't be okay. Don't be okay with where you're at. God, you be content in the love of God, but you don't stay there. You, you want to love him back. Amen? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says this, do not quench the spirit. One translation says, do not put out the spirit's fire. Did you know? The Holy Spirit, the sovereign Holy Spirit, you have the ability to quench it. You have the ability to quench God's work in your life. Really? Yeah. Why would it say do not quench the Spirit if you didn't have the ability to do that? Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to launch a new series. We're going to take a break from series. I think we're going to talk about Abraham uh, for a couple of weeks, possibly. That's kind of where my heart's going. But after that, we're going to enter into a series about the Holy Spirit. And it is so important that we maintain a life, that we continue a life that is welcoming the Holy Spirit, that we're not putting out the Holy Spirit's fire. I'm not going to leave you alone, Overflow. I'm not going to leave you alone. Just like God ain't going to leave you alone. I'm not going to leave you alone about being fervent for Jesus. You know, some of y'all are probably thinking, man, I'm ready for this series to be over. It's just challenging me. It seems like Josh is preaching at me. Just get on, baby. Let's all, let's all pursue Jesus together. Let's go on this hunt. If we just make the present, his presence the goal of our life. Well, I got the presence. Are you okay with how much presence you got? Because I'm not. Okay. The enemy, that's the enemy's will for you, that you would just settle. Right there in worship, whoa, calm down. Don't want to be like that guy. (laughs) Right? I mean, oh, that's the enemy. Okay. So, complacency breeds coldness, and coldness opens the door for compromise. Check this out. Revelation chapter 2, speaking to the church in Ephesus. I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Whoa. Whoa, kind Jesus Meek little mild baby Jesus, why are you talking like this? I had this against you. He's not talking to the, the lost. He's talking to the church. I have this against you. You've forsaken your first love. You're loving something else. Revelation 3, 15, the church of Laodicea, I know your deeds. Jesus was looking at their deeds. Uh-oh, Careful. I was looking at their deeds, and I know that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other, but because you're lukewarm and not hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm about to vomit. Coldness makes Jesus sick. Oh. Actually, coldness, he won't even take it in. But lukewarmness makes him sick. What is lukewarmness? complacency. It's something that was hot and has went room temperature. That's what lukewarm is. Lukewarm is like whenever you boil water and you leave it on the counter 
and you leave it there for two or three hours, and you come back, and it's the temperature of the room. That's what lukewarm is. So Jesus is rebuking the church because they settled. They became complacent. Their love waxed cold. Okay, so let's talk about shaking complacency. How many of y'all know it's an issue? How many of y'all struggle with it sometimes? Okay. So how do we shake complacency? Well, number one, this is real practical, recognize it, repent from it, reject it, and refuse it. Other words, no, I'm not going to be complacent. You got to get like that about it. You can't be like, well, I don't want to be complacent anymore. Right? I'll just continue on my little friendly two-minute devotion every day. It don't work like that. You've got to make a change. You've got to reject it. The word repent to means to change your mind, to change the way you think. I'm not thinking like this anymore. I'm not thinking that I go... That I, that I have Jesus in the morning and that I have Jesus at night. No, I'm repenting. I'm changing my thinking. Jesus all the time. Right? Okay. Recognize, repent, reject, and refuse it. Okay, number two, commit to growth. Right? Commit to growth. It's interesting uh, how our society right now is so saturated with being fit, with being uh, eating healthy. You see all the most of posts that I'm seeing on Facebook are, first of all, complaining about how negative our our country is, which is so annoying when people do that. And the other thing that all they're posting about is nutrition this and, you know, don't eat this. If you eat this, you're going to die. And that this is all in our food. I'm getting so sick of seeing it. And, oh, I worked out today. Doesn't everybody want to see how fit I am? No, nobody doesn't care. Nobody cares. Nobody really cares. Why don't you give them something to encourage them? <laughs> so we're committed to all these things. Listen, there's nothing wrong with you being Paul said you should you, that, that there is some value to, to, to focusing on your fitness and things like that. But listen, we are more committed to all these things, eating healthy and do 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 do. We're all, we're more committed to that than we are to growing and nurturing our spirit. Those things are great, awesome. Keep doing it. But how committed are you to your personal growth in Jesus? How committed are you to growing in God? Because when growth stops, decay starts. When growth stops, decay starts. I read that 20 years ago on a, on a church, uh, what do you call those things, those marquee, whatever. I remember seeing that. I was like, dang, that's good. That'll preach. And, uh, and I've been preaching it since then. When growth stops, decay starts. You're either growing in your walk with the Lord or you're dying in your walk with the Lord. Your love is either burning brighter than it was yesterday or it's going out. What are you doing to nurture your faith? I ask yourself that question. What am I doing to nurture my faith in Jesus? Now, how long have you been doing it that way? I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying more time, but how are you changing it up to see growth in your life? Come on. I know this is real, like, preachy today. Listen, the enemy will be satisfied with half-hearted obedience. Jesus will not be. He's going to chase you and chase you and hunt you down. You are the hunt of his heart. He is going to hunt you down until you're in his presence in, in heaven. He's going to keep hunting you. And this is the thing, is, is Jesus, let me just say this to you right now, because some of you, it's, it's just, it's an immature love or it's a weak love. Listen, God doesn't have a problem with immature and weak love. 
The problem is when we stop growing in our love for him and justify our position to stay where we're at. So God doesn't have a problem with you that your commitment is weak. Are you with me? He doesn't have a problem with you that, that, that you're undisciplined. He has a problem that if you're okay with being that way. Are you with me? He wants the sincerity of your heart, but sincerity's got to go at some level. You can't just have good thoughts. Oh, I want you, God. Next Sunday, the same prayer. Oh, I want you, God. It's got to be a little bit more intentional than that. He wants you to commit to growth, to grow your faith. Where are you going to be at? Again, all those other things are great, but this is our prize. As kingdom people, king is first. King is Lord. Jesus is center. Number three, tenderness of heart. Some of you right now, you've been challenged by just what I said, so you're getting hardened towards heart. I'm going to ask you to be tender towards heart, that we would have a humble heart before God. Complacency is a pride issue. It's a pride issue. It's not a weakness issue. Weakness, weakness isn't hardened. Are you with me? We, we have weakness. We all, how many are weak? Come on, this is why we come to Jesus. We recognize our weakness and we need him. And, but complacency is a pride issue. Complacency says, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to grow. I'm okay. I don't need to be a better husband. I don't need to be a better father. I was so blessed by Nate Southers this week. I read a post about him talking about how God was just stretching him and, and how there was some, some thing going on in his life that he was spending time with his daughter. He's like, I'm going to do this stuff more because I want to be a better dad. And I remember reading that. It's just being, my heart was like challenged. I was like, oh, that's so good that, we, that, we would, that we'd be willing to shake some things up in our life so we could have a more tender heart towards raising our kids or raising our family. Come on. Or being, a, being better on the job. But complacency says, no, I don't really, I'm a good dad. I'm a good husband. I'm a good son. I'm a good daughter. Check out James 4, verse 7. So humble yourself before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Wait, I skipped something, didn't I? Come close to God. I knew I did. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Listen, Jesus instigates closeness like this. He puts the desire in us to be closer to God. Okay? He says, hey, I want you to be closer to me. Then he does this. Right? He goes, will you come? So you can sit there, and you won't get any closer to God. But if you get up, stand up, Nate, and you come close to me, then God comes close to us. This is what happens. All right, you can sit down. But God put the desire in there. He wouldn't even have thought about it if I wouldn't have said anything about it. The only reason why you want God is because he wants you, and he put that desire in you. But you've got to step forward. If you come close to God, he will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Why? Because condemnation? No, because you're realizing I'm living without him. Oh, I need to get before God. 
Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Humble yourself, and he will lift you up. Humility, I love what C.S. Lewis says about humility. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So humility isn't, oh, I'm just such a rotten person, such a filthy sinner, all this kind of stuff. That's not humility. A lot of times that's false humility. But sometimes we, we think that that's humility, right? Like someone comes and gives you a compliment and you go, it's all Jesus, right? Then that's just super spiritual. How I many you know it's okay to take a compliment? Come on, someone's admiring you. You know, we, we get all funny, you know, like um, I remember there was this, this, uh, you know, everybody's like, I'm not, I'm not religious. I just love the Lord. I remember like people, like family members that I have that don't like serve Jesus and they come up to me and they're like, you're just so religious. And, you know, and our religious spirit goes, I'm not religious. I just love Jesus. How many of you know that that like you totally just spoiled an opportunity? Don't try to put it off with, you know, you're really just being prideful because you have the right answer. Rather than just being humble of heart and being like, Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. You know, it's just God loves me so much, and I'm just trying to respond well to his love in my life. How much better of an answer is that than, oh, let me correct you, because I have all the answers. That's pride. I'm not religious. Yes, you are. They're giving you a compliment. They're saying you're committed to a cause. Get over that. Your funky terminology. Let me correct you, oh vile sinner. Let me educate you in my deep doctrine. It's a relationship, not a religion. Get over it. That's a good statement. I understand what the people are saying. All right. But don't be so prideful. Gosh. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. All right. So a tenderness of heart, a humble heart before God, that when God does something, um, uh, I'm finding in my life that, that, uh, that God is really just kind of doing this thing in me. Um, I'm weak just like every other guy. Leslie and I were having kind of some tension this week. We don't fight. We have intense fellowship. And uh, so we had some intense fellowship, and I was not... Uh, very godly, and I was uh, responded of weakness, and I really didn't really trust the Lord. And so we did something we never do, and that we went to bed upset. Okay, I'm just going to just be real honest with you. We went to bed upset, and I don't like to do that. I think that the, the enemy will use that. This rarely happens, but it did happen. And so I woke up, and Leslie comes walking in the room, and she brings me a cup of coffee. And she looks at me, and she said, today's a new day. And I was like, in that moment, she walked out of the room, and I was just kind of like crying, like before the Lord. I was just filled with God's presence at that moment because it was very humbling for me because I was very prideful on the, on the front end of that. But now, as I was humbling myself, God was promoting me. Are you with me? And so we've got to develop this tenderness of heart where, where struggles and issues and frustrations don't make us hard. Come on, are you with me? They make us tender. We don't get cold because someone wounds us. And I love that my wife so much that she's, she's got a humble heart uh, because I'm not really there yet. You know what I'm saying? Like, my, yeah. So we, we've got to develop that. My dad, 
has told me before, he said, son, the only difference between bitter and better is I. And I was like, man, I'll never forget that. We've got to be, listen, we have the choice to decide where something makes us bitter, bitter or better. Because difficulty will come, but how will you come out of the difficulty? Will you be bitter or will you be better? It's all about the tenderness of heart, the mildness of your heart. So if we're going to grow, if we're going to grow, we've got to have tender, tender hearts, okay? And so I know for me that was a big growth moment. I love you. And so that was uh, really good for me. And I was just like, oh. How many of you know that I, that I wasn't like being, oh, I wasn't apologizing. I was like, oh, oh, oh. It was just like she came to me. And then after that, I was just like, oh, God. <laughs> for the next like five minutes. And then I went in and we talked and it was good. So um, number four, and this is a challenge because of the, the age that we live in and the terminology. The next is the fear of the Lord. Um, to fear the Lord. This is a great key in breaking complacency. We, last week we talked about Solomon, okay? Y'all remember that? If you want to go back and listen to the podcast, you can do that. Solomon, he said, God, God said, what do you want? He said, Lord, I want wisdom to lead your people. I want wisdom to manage your kingdom, to steward your kingdom well. And God says this, because you've asked for that and you didn't ask for riches or strong armies and money and all this kind of stuff, he's like, I'm going to bring all those things and I'm going uh, to give you the wisdom that you wanted. So this is the beginning of, of Solomon's rule when he says this. Later, Solomon forgot. He forgot. Solomon says this about wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Later, if you know the story of Solomon, he wasn't so wise at the end of his life. Anybody that goes out and gets like 600 concubines is not very wise. What happened? He lost the fear of the Lord. He forgot what God had commanded him to do. So he moved into this area, and God says, I'm, dis- I'm disapproving of you, Solomon. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep... I'm going to keep the kingdom in the lineage because of your father, David. He always pursued me. But because you quit pursuing me, because you got settled in all the things that I gave you, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. I'm going to give it to your son. I'm still going to bless it, but it's, it's crumbling down. What happened? Solomon lost the fear of God, and his wisdom stopped. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? Let me just say this, okay? Let me break this down because I think that there's a misconception. I think it's kind of a mystery a little bit, but I want to explore it for just a moment. A healthy fear of the Lord doesn't hinder our confidence to approach Him, but it breaks the comfort in our knowledge and revelation of Him. Let me see that, say that again. A healthy fear of the Lord doesn't hinder our confidence to approach Him. It's not like I'm not going to go to God because I'm afraid. No, that's what Adam did in the garden. God showed up. God wasn't, God was ticked, yes, but he still came looking for Adam. So what did Adam do? He hid unhealthy fear of the Lord. God's like, I come to hang out with you. Where are you at? Well, God, I wasn't, who told you that? A healthy fear of the Lord doesn't hinder our confidence to approach him. Solomon approached the Lord before. Are you with me? It doesn't hinder our confidence to approach him but it breaks the comfort in our knowledge and revelation of him. It says, God, there's so much more of you. I need to know more. 
That's what the healthy fear of the Lord is, to remember that he's sovereign, that he's powerful. Sometimes, sometimes my kids forget that I'm daddy. I'll get on the floor and I'll play with Judah. And sometimes when I'm, when I'm doing that, he forgets I'm dad. How many know that my nature is unchanging? I'm always going to be his dad. And he knows that I have the power in me to take him out. Listen, he's not afraid of me, but he knows dad is in charge. And so what we've done is we've lost the fear of the Lord and we're, we start justifying things in our life because we're like, uh, God's okay. He kind of winks at sin. How many know that it's called the Holy Spirit, not the unholy spirit? God is holy. He is, he is not like you. The word holy means uncommon. God is not like you at all. Nothing like you. We have all of our great comparisons. Oh, he's kind of like that. Yeah, kind of. He's God. He is totally unlike you. However, through Jesus, he is making you more like him. Come on. The fear of the Lord, and I came up with this little fun little thing. The fear of the Lord is not rooted in fright, but keeping sight of his might. So it's not about being frightful, not being scared, but it's by keeping sight of his might. God is powerful. We've been having these electrical issues in the building. They've mostly cleared up. And uh, so we have an electrical box back there. I'm not scared to go to the electrical box and flip switches and stuff like that. But if I start getting a screwdriver and start sticking it in there, how many know I've lost the fear of that thing, the healthy fear that God put inside of me to know, hey, I can approach this, but I need to approach it the right way. And so it's like it's thousands of volts of electricity, I guess. I don't know how many it is. But I might have a few volts in me because we do. We all have electricity. But it's totally on a different scale. So God says, come to me. I want to give you life. But don't forget who I am. And not just forget because we automatically think terror when we think fear. No, 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 no. The fear is the reverential awe that we look at him and say, God. You are powerful, and you are good. It's like I love, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the, the lion. They were like, oh, he's, he's such a good lion. They're like, yeah, he's good, but he's wild. I loved that. I was just like, oh, don't forget he is a lion. Don't forget. What's beautiful is that a God like that would love a man like you and love a woman like you. God would love you. Let us not lose sight of how powerful God is, because that's really what the fear of the Lord is, is, is forgetting his nature. Is it, not fearing the Lord means that we forget his nature. 1 John 4.18, I'm going to explore this just a moment, and then we'll move on. 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. So people, what they say, oh, we don't need to fear God anymore. No, 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 we still need to fear God. But there is no fear in love, because perfect love draws out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. What is that saying? That's saying if, if, if my son, Judah, is continually afraid of me, there's no love connection there. Right? And so how many know that there's a difference between punishment 
and discipline. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that God will discipline his sons. If God loves you, he will discipline you. But it's not the way we think. God's not going to punish you with sickness. Jesus took sickness. Are you with me? He's not, God's not punishing you with depression. That, that's devil ministry. Jesus' ministry is healing, fullness, completeness. So that's devil ministry. Devil ministry is all this destruction. There is discipline. We're not getting into that today. But punishment is that God is punishing you. Oh, God's just, he's mad at me. He's frustrated at me. God is not mad at you. He's not frustrated at you. However, he does not wink or affirm wrong behaviors. We've got so much of this in the church today. Ah, you sin, not a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal when you sin. It is a big deal. Don't tell me and don't tell yourself and don't tell anybody else it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. I love what John Bevere says. He says, not the fear to be with God, but the fear to be away from him. <laughs> so good. I saw that this week. I was like, oh, my gosh, that is perfect. What is the fear of the Lord? It's not the fear to be with him, but it's the fear to be without him. Do we say, God, I want to keep you close. Moses, I'm going to shift gears to this story, and this is going to help close us out here. The children of Israel, you guys remember Moses went to the mountain. He got the, the Ten Commandments, okay? He went. This God says, I'm making a new covenant with my people. You brought them out here. We're out here in the wilderness. Here's the covenant. This is my covenant towards my people. If they do these things, then, then they're going to experience my goodness. Da, 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 and he gives them the Ten Commandments. Forty days after God establishes this covenant, the children of Israel are building idols. Forty days. I mean, it's like just a little, like six weeks. They're like, oh, let's make this. And Aaron's like, okay, let's, let's build it. And it's like, Moses is going, what are you doing? God just said, don't do this. This is his covenant. He brought you out of all this stuff, and you're building idols. What happened? They became complacent. They became complacent. How many of you know that the children of Israel feared God, but so did Moses? They had an unhealthy fear of God. Moses had a healthy fear of God. Moses wasn't afraid to approach God, but he feared God. They were scared of God. Are y'all with me today? Are y'all tracking with me? Check this out. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11. Inside the tent of meeting, now this was a tent that would later become the temple, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. We were talking about humility a while ago. Moses, God looked at the whole earth, and he said this about Moses. He's the most humble man on the earth. He said, Moses is the most humble. Listen, so Moses would speak to God face to face. Did he fear God? Absolutely. But his fear was to not be in God's presence, not to fear be in God's presence. Afterwards, Moses would return to camp, but a young man, this is a great little nugget in here, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. This is, that's the kind of generation that God's raising up, the Joshua's that would remain in the tent of meeting. Come on, are you with me? Joshua is the Old Testament picture of Jesus. The name Joshua and Jesus and the same name, the same name in the Hebrew, God saves his people. So it's like there's this abiding presence. Anyway, we, we need to move on. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know who to send with me. 
You've said I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so I can know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. He's like telling God, remember? I mean, he's approaching God. He's being real with God, but still fearing him. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you. He said, God, who are you going to send? Me. I'm not going to send anybody. I'm going to show up. <laughs> right? So many times we're asking for the deliverance, and God's saying, I'm right there with you. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. You're not going to have to stress out about this anymore because I'm going with you. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Would we be a people like Moses and say, God, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. If you're not going to go with me, then I'll stay right here. I'm not leaving until you go with me. This is the kind of hunger and the hunt that God wants to put inside of us. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? Who else would distinguish me from your people and all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. The fear of the Lord says, God, I've got to be with you. I've got to be in your presence. I've got to know who you are. And then Moses said, now, Lord, show me your glory. And so Moses went, and God said, well, you got to hide. You can't see the whole thing. It's going to blast you if that happens. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to reveal myself. And so God reveals himself to Moses. There's all this other stuff that happens. And then when he coming out from the mountain, his face was beaming because he had encountered God. And so he was going. And so they put a thing over his face, like a, like a, like a cloth over his face, because like, they, they could tell it was fading, and they didn't want it to fade. It says this, and I want to say 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we with unveiled faces all reflect the, the Lord's glory from going from glory to glory. So our, we don't have a, a glory that's fading. We have an ever-increasing glory, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So he says, God, I need this. And he said, what you need is not somebody else. Because Moses' whole life is like, Lord, send me somebody else. I'm unqualified. He said, because you fear me, because you get before me, I'm going to be the one that goes with you. I'm going to put my glory on you, and you're going to go. And so what we do is we forget God's glory in us. The glory is the weight of God, the kabod, the weight of God's glory. What does that mean? The tangibleness of God's presence. When we ask for the glory of God, what we're saying is we're saying, God, I want you to be tangible. That's why uh, Overflow, our, our mission is the reality of Jesus. What do we want? We want the glory of God. We want God's presence on our life, just like Moses. So God says, I'm going to go with you. And this is what God's saying to us today. I'm going to go with you, with you if you'll be on the glory hunt. Will you be on the glory hunt? So we have that healthy fear, just like Moses. And number five, become students of his endless affections. Become students. Nate, you want to come up? Become students of his endless affections. Listen, I've found this. I've found this. How many of y'all want to be students of his affections? I know that we're totally like switching gears here. Become a student of his affections. God is affectionate. He's emotional. He loves you. He desires you. But I've found that the, the, the more that I dwell on how much God loves me, it draws me in to love him. So it's not so much about me thinking about my performance this week or my frustrations this week. It's more about me thinking about the goodness of God. It's more about me remembering those encounters that I've had with the Lord. Psalm chapter 139 
Verse 17 says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. Let me read that again because I feel like we're distracted. Listen, how precious are your thoughts about me? Oh, God, they cannot be numbered. If, they would, if I would count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. In one square foot, all right, a square foot. This is roughly a square foot. In roughly one square foot of sand, there are 1.8 billion grains. 1.8 billion grains in that much sand. Sand that you could put in a bag and carry. 1.8 billion. He says this, he says, God, your affections are for me. Your thoughts are for me. If I were to count them, they'd be more than all the sand on the planet. Listen, this is how deep God's affections are for us. So as we engage Him, as we approach Him, let's just begin to reflect on His love.